One of the challenges we like to sit down with men, typically over a cup of coffee, um, and we start talking about what, is, what does it look like, what do they understand about what it might look like to be a disciple maker. We choose that word very intentionally. There's a lot of conversation about discipleship. What's interesting is when Jesus gave his instructions, he didn't say go discipleshipping. Hi, I'm David Dennis with the Kansas Communities Ministry with the Navigators. Thank you so much for joining us today. This is the second of three podcasts exploring a somewhat different model for making disciple makers, featuring my conversation with Mel Fleming. Mel and his wife Lois currently reside in Columbia, South Carolina. Retired from the business community, Mel is focusing on what he has always loved, pouring into the spiritual lives of others. He starts today by helping us understand what the inductive Bible study method is all about. The IBS method has three elements observation, interpretation, and application. Another way of describing these three phases is what does the writer say, what does the writer mean, and finally, what do I do about it? Mel begins by describing the elements of observation of the text. At the core, basically started at the core, and starting with really three steps. So we're now calling this whole process steps toward equipping disciple makers. And part of that equipping process is we take a look at the text of scripture at the paragraph level or multiple paragraph level. And step one would be looking at that text and then looking at it from the point of view, what is the writer saying? Who is he talking to? Who's involved? What are the key, the big ideas, the main ideas at the paragraph level? And then looking at that, since this is God's letter to us, we also like to look at it at that point. What do we learn about God? What can, what does that text say about God's character? What does that text say about how God works, how God thinks, what God expects? Uh, and even what God doesn't say is equally important. So the big idea really revolves around what can we learn at the paragraph level about God's ways. And that really helps highlight the major themes of a passage. Not every passage goes into that level of detail at the paragraph level, but invariably the whole message comes back to this is his letter to us, the more we know, the better we understand his thinking, his expectation, the more likely we get a better, a better way of understanding it from his point of view. So that's really looking at it from the observational point. Then once we scope that out, then we go back through that paragraph or two or three again and say, okay, what do the key terms, usually there'll be key themes and key ideas, now, what is the, the, what are the words around that that give a lot of color, scope, definition, and meaning to that, those key ideas? Ephesians 5, 1, for example, off the top of my head starts off with, that's well in the letter, but it starts off with imitate God. Ouch. What does that look like? 
Now, I said, who's the main character? Well, it's God. What do we learn about what God expects? He wants us to imitate God. Now, we can look back from chapter one all the way through four to begin to pull that theme through. And then he goes on to say, as little children, love is Christ's love. Oh, now we got the Father, we got the Son. How, in what ways, what do we learn about how Christ loved? And what is it about the relationship of how little kids respond as little children? Learn about responding to love. So there's a context right off the bat. We learn a lot about God the Father, imitate the Father. We learn a lot about the Son. Later on in that passage, he also talks about being filled with the Spirit. So in those first two paragraphs, we have a whole bunch of information about the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit right there. Now, what is it, what do all those things look like? Well, there's some negatives comment. Don't live like that. Live like this. Just in two very short paragraphs. That's an example. Anyway, so paragraph step one is what does the text say? What does the writer say? Number two, what does the writer mean? And there we like to explore what are the definitions of the key words as used in that context. Now we're not, we're trying not to chase all our bots throughout the whole Bible because that becomes a very informative Bible study. But for a lot of people learning the process, that can be overwhelming. So it helps, we find it helps to just really focus on that paragraph or two and begin to see how it develops and flows. So word definition is very, very important, very, very helpful. And then looking at the connectives, the who, what, where, when, why, and how. And then we look at the you old know, key words that are really very often Paul's, Paul's loaded with. So then, just then, but, but that, those kinds of connections become very, very helpful. And another thing that's very helpful there is what key words are repeated frequently. It's a hint, a suggestion that if the writer repeats a word frequently, it must, could mean that he's, that's a very important idea for the writer. Well, maybe we see how those repeated words are used and how they're used in that context. For example, Ephesians 5, when it talks about the marriage section, there's a word that's repeated, a two-letter word repeated eight times. It's the two-letter word as. You go back and look at that paragraph, as, and you, you link up how the as is used eight different ways, and you suddenly get a totally different picture and an image of what biblical marriage can look like, should look like, could look like, based on a two-letter word. Very insightful when men, especially when men pick that up. Anyway, sorry for that. <laughs> no, that's great. That's great. Sorry for that. So <clears throat> phase one is what does the writer say? Phase two, what does the writer mean? The interpretation phase. And then phase three, it really has to do with, well, what do I do with that? What can I learn? What can, you know, what, what does the text talk about that I can do more of, less of, change? You know, is, does the text say anything about the way I think? my attitudes, what I spend time on, shouldn't spend time on, and then ultimately looking at that text and asking the fundamental question is, what is in this passage that helps me nurture, feed, energize my relationship with God that I can take away? Mm -hmm. Let me rephrase that. What is in that text that can help me nurture, feed, nourish my relationship with the God of the Bible? And what we're finding is people in our culture in South Carolina have a lot of different gods. Uh-oh. <laughs> now we're stepping on toes. 
It's what does the God of the Bible have to say, yes. which is often totally different from what other gods are that people pursue. Sorry for the long explanation. So observation, what does it say? Interpretation, what does it mean? And number three, you'd say, what does God want me to do about it? How does my life need to conform to what what this passage says about God? And how does he want me to relate to that? Is that a that's good summary very, of this? That's very, that's very straightforward. Okay. And when people start there, it has enormously positive outcomes. So mechanically speaking, how many uh, hours per day or week would a person spend on this sort of approach as a, as a participant? That's a loaded question. So what we try to do when we pull a team together, we ask for some commitment and we ask for, for them to join us for a season. And the season roughly shapes up to what we're finding is, well, first of all, we like to find a team, and I'll talk about the team makeup in a minute, but a team of six to eight people. We've tried bigger groups, tried smaller groups, but six, five to eight is really optimal. Um, we ask them to block out on their calendar 90-minute sessions is a team meeting once a week. Could be morning, evening, but the team then decides the daytime and place. And we then ask them to, on their calendar, set aside calendar-wise 38 sessions. Take breaks for holidays, take all kinds of breaks and, you know, as we go. Point being, we do life day in, day out. Leaders, we find out that effective leaders really work their calendar. We've learned that effective leaders, they can make times, allocate time to improve, improve their leadership skills. So we find that, you know, when people, especially men, begin to say, I want to, en I want to enhance my leadership skills for the next season. I'm going to allocate some time to meet with a group of guys. Then we can do the same thing uh, to get equipped, to enhance my skills, uh, to do this process. We call it a process. Now, when they meet, they get it, they get the assignments, we calendar that out. And then for each meeting session, there will be two or three paragraphs that they will prepare to engage about at the next meeting session. So how much time does it take? Well, it kind of depends on how efficiently people utilize their time. Some are very inefficient, and then they find themselves scrambling, but then their whole life seems to be like that, unfortunately. <laughs> so again, we're trying to build in discipline, we're trying to build in a practice of making a commitment that's very intentional. We're trying to build in a, I am going to commit to this for a season. And the outcomes will be, I will be much better equipped to lead other people, to help other people grow and, and, and lead more productive spiritual lives. So it's highly intentional. The big mission view is, look, we're meeting to equip ourselves and each other to go replicate. 
It's not just we're sitting here having fun. We'll have a lot of fun along the way, by the way. Once the team gels, boy, the, the jokes come, you know, I mean, we have a ball. Uh, but it's a very tight team now running together on the same mission with the same goals as the outcomes. I think um, that's, that's so inspiring that, that you form the team, six to eight, in this case, men, could be women, um, and you're on the same mission, and that is, as I understand it, to grow spiritually yourselves, number one, number two, to learn how to be a leader, how to be disciplined, how to have commitment in your life, intentionality, to be able to reproduce it. So as you, quote, recruit men to a team, do you tell them up front that this is the goal is to replicate? Yes, very much so. So that's, that leads to a very interesting question now. So when we invite uh, men, we like to pick on the men because we need more men to step it up, very frankly, <laughs> uh, big time. <clears throat> so one of the challenges we like to sit down with men, typically over a cup of coffee, um, and we start talking about what, is, what does it look like, what do they understand about what it might look like to be a disciple maker. We choose that word very intentionally. There's a lot of conversation about discipleship. What's interesting is when Jesus gave his instructions, he didn't say go discipleshipping. Number two, it's very interesting. And, and by the way, not all churches talk about disciple making either. That's all another topic. But even in churches where they do, where discipleship is a an intentional goal, it's very, and we've done this actually, we've sat down with pastors and staff and members of churches, what does discipleship look like, discipleship? What do you think the biblical process would be? And more importantly, what do people perceive to be the difference between discipleship versus what Jesus said, go and make disciples? And it's a very, very interesting conversation. It's an enormous conversation, eye-opener. Um, so uh, we'd like to sit down with folks, start, you know, start by the high-level conversation, and then zero into this, you know, the, along the way that we'd really like to find, number one, men and women um, who are really hungry, hungry for a really th- a thriving personal relationship with God. Now, a lot of these folks have been around church. They've been their faith for a while. They've been through Bible studies. They've been through small groups, et cetera, et cetera. All of that's good foundational material. Out of that, are there some folks that you may know? I didn't say you. I said, do you know? (laughs) That uh, have a real hunger to really grow beyond where they are now. And they're really motivated, driven. They really want to. They're serious about, you know, enhancing a thriving relationship with God and hungry to grow. We'd love to meet and talk to those people. So that's kind of criteria one. People who have a hunger to go to another level from where they are. We're not recruiting for seminary. We're just basically assessing where are they and do they have a hunger step to go beyond that. Number two, what we're offering uh, is a season of training and equipping. Keywords, training and equipping uh, you know, where we invite a small group of folks together, six to eight, five to eight people to get together as a small group, uh, to study the word 
and to prepare themselves to become more effective disciple makers, not just disciples. Again, we want to emphasize that word makers because makers is a very different direction about it uh, than just being a disciple. We want disciples, we want disciples to grow. And then from there, then the conversation basically goes down to uh, what are the outcomes, for example, why do we meet in a small group? There are a lot of good things that happen when people pursue God together because we nurture and encourage and help each other grow. And and it becomes kind of what we're finding is depending on the level of faith experience, people that think they know the Bible from inside and out, and they get a newbie and their new Christian is full of questions. Well, we'd like to see that mix because the people who thought they knew it all discover they really didn't know it as well as they thought they did because they cannot answer immediately the newbies' questions. And we've seen this in a number of groups. Younger Christians with this enormous appetite really makes people stop and think, wait a minute, how do I explain that to a newbie who doesn't has never heard this before? And it changes the way we talk, it changes the way we interact, it changes the relational connection, and it becomes a very, very healthy dynamic. So again, as a group, you know, we grow together, and what people then discover that there's a lot of value that we get, huge value in helping another person grow. It also has a huge kingdom impact in becoming and learning how to be a disciple maker by doing it. So that's part of that conversation. And the next part is how do we do it? Well, we've discovered weekly team meetings once a week, once a week. We'll give reading assignments. We give, we may allow, we do allow one commentary. Uh, we've chosen John Stott uh, for Ephesians and Second Timothy because he tends to do a, a good job about helping people find key themes, and he does a reasonably good job of identifying key words, defining them, so people can go to one source and don't have to go to 10 to do the, the definition work. Uh, so John can become along as a mentor, uh, as one of the teammates, well, even though we read what he wrote and so on. And then uh, the, the group discussions are very stimulating. They're very engaging. Uh, we do a lot of relationship building. In addition to the team meet, uh, we pair off two members to go one-on-one with each other, A, to do relationship building, B, that they can begin to learn more about each other, help each other grow. C, we want them to start praying for each other's families and kids and each other's growth to become disciple makers. And then fourthly, it gives them a chance as a twosome. Hey, you know, last week we talked about X, Y, Z. I didn't understand that. Can you help me understand this? And they begin to nurture each other as a supplement to the team meeting. We're finding that actually very, very beneficial. Uh, And in addition to that, from time to time, the team leader will also meet with individuals one-on-one just to keep them on track and make sure they don't get lost in the shuffle along the way. I think um, the other thing that popped into my mind as you were speaking was you said it's about a 30, I think you said 38-week or 36-week, I can't remember what you said, uh, duration. Do you tell them up front that it is for a defined length of time, and then at the end of that, we are not going to continue, but we'll hope that you will reproduce after that. In other words, they go into it, realizing it's not a forever course? It's a great question. We are very carefully chosen to call it 38 sessions. 
as opposed to weeks. And here's why. Some of the things real quick, well, 38, that's about nine months. There's no way I'm going to commit to something for nine months and they're gone. Seeing that happen. So we're very carefully choosing. Look, it's the number of meeting sessions together. It's the interaction sessions. That's where the secret sauce happens. So the goal is that we commit to meeting together for 38 sessions. We'll calendar it out with breaks, holiday breaks, and so on. So it's not every week all the way through. So there are reasonable breaks, you know, with seasonality. The reason we're, we're kind of landing on that amount of time, we've tried shorter versions and we're, we're kind of trying to figure out where is the ideal meeting time to allow the teammates to get sufficient practice leading a small group. And then we talk about that, where they can get comfortable leading a group of their own. Uh, we ask them to commit uh, for that period of time. Uh, we ask them to do a short agreement. You know, I'm a business guy, so I'm kind of used to, hey, here's a memorandum of understanding. We don't call it that, but it's a short, we're dealing agreeing to these. I'm agreeing to allocate the time. I'm agreeing to finish strong. And I'm also signing my name. To, I'm agreeing to become a reproducer of this, to replicate this when I'm ready to go. You know, I love how this approach focuses on replication. People come into it knowing that the goal is to learn how to get God's Word into their own lives to grow in Christlikeness, as well as to replicate this process in others. Join us next time for the final episode with Mel Fleming when he shares with us some inspiring stories of how this has worked out in the lives of the men he has worked with. Together, we will continue to learn how to make disciples naturally. The views expressed on this podcast are those of the speakers and are not necessarily the views of the navigators, nor of the Kansas Communities Ministry. Thank you for listening.